us again. Every hour. On the hour. Huffing and puffing. Look, Doctor, I know science comes first. But that thing is ridiculous. For six hours straight. Every hour on the hour. And you're listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Charles Lee, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Brian Gerke. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in the role of science. I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Mike Fitzhugh. We'll be talking with Dr. Robert Kuhn about his upcoming PBS show, Closer to Truth, and give you the answer to last week's question of the week What is rubbing alcohol? So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous Question of the Week coming right up here on Perfect Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. And leaving me being Brian Gerke. All right. Well, what up, V? Uh, Mr. B Man. Haven't seen you in a while. Good to yeah, see yeah. you again. Been, you know, I've been off fighting crime. Fighting crime. Oh, oh I thought... so you mean spring break? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, fighting the crime of overwork and sobriety. <laughs> right. And spring break. Which is always uh, essential to do. I thought you were out to spin the wheels of science wherever they may need to be greased. That too, yeah. Whatever that I'm, means. I've, been, I've been greasing wheels and, okay. and uh, turning cranks and so on. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, well, in the world of science. In the world of science, yes. I finally have a story that's fit to air. Okay. Because it's from the New York Times where everything is fit to print. All right. This came from last Does week. Does it actually translate from being fit to print to actually being fit to air? I don't know. Letters can almost fly. But uh, this is something for all those environmentalists out there and travelers. So according to statistics, it turns out the average 747 making a trip from New York to London spews about 440 tons of carbon dioxide. That translates to about 80 SUVs running for a full year. 80 SUVs for a full year. Yeah. Wow. A lot of gas. Yeah. Wow, yeah. So uh, there's a couple of efforts to uh, mitigate the uh, carbon dioxide emissions. There's an organization in Britain called Future Forest, and what they'll do is they'll plant either two trees or replace two light bulbs with energy-efficient ones for 12 bucks every time you take an international flight. Hmm. So, unfortunately, that doesn't give you a tax deductible because it's a non-profit in UK, but there's another one called uh, AmericanForest.org, and basically you just donate the minimum of 15 bucks and they'll plant trees for you. 
That's cool. Yeah. Why not just take a boat or something? Oh, you could do that too, or you know, just swim, swim, swim. Yeah. Yeah. swim. So all right. you frequent flyers out there, uh, <laughs> break out the wetsuits. That's right. Yeah. You know, I thought I read an article a while back in which they were talking about a study right after you know the whole 9/11 provided a unique opportunity for them to see what global warming temperatures or average temperature of the Earth was like after the grounding of all these airplanes. Right. I think it changed the weather a lot, partly because the uh, the jets produced like microparticles of ice, and that somehow influenced the weather. So when they ground all the planes, it had somehow changed the cloud conditions as right. well. Jets do spew out a rather obscene amount of pollution per yeah, person in comparison to cars. I do wonder if they ever gonna, are going to try to do anything about that in the same Taking way. Taking up space. Starting I to try to do it about cars. Yeah. Bit. And they're also dumping like lavatory waste as they fly. Is that right? <laughs> Frozen blocks of poo <laughs> yes. falling on your head. That's right. Uh, killing killing day. cows over the Midwest as they go. Yeah. Alright, well anyway, so uh, where can people find out more about... Uh, so if people want to offset this uh, carbon dioxide, they can uh, just go to futureforest.com or americanforests.org. I have news today from uh, one of our favorite or at least most frequently covered topics on, here on Berkeley Grox. It is, of I, course, human sexuality. Yes. X-E-S, right? <laughs> yes. For some reason, for some reason, scientists are obsessed with this. God knows why. It's, it's a foreign concept to both yeah. scientists is why, I think. Oh, natural. I suppose so, yeah. Oh, natural. So we have, we have more of an objective sense about it. Yeah, I well, guess. you know, objectivity is important in yes, science. Indeed. And, and you don't want to cloud your thinking by actually... So is this shaken, not stirred? No, uh, this has to do with how sperm actually find the egg while they're swimming along there. Because the egg's off small, you know, right. in, in yeah. comparison to the environment. Well, it's the size of a pinhead, right? So uh, how do the sperm go and find this thing? It's been a, a question for a while, and it like turns out that walk. they might smell it out. They smell it out? They might smell it out. This, uh, this group uh, at University of Bochum in Germany found an odorant receptor in human testicular tissue found that it caused the sperm to be attracted very much to a different chemical, presumably, presumably. the odor, odor. So similar to the sense of smell, leading you to whatever it is you're looking for. So this uh, isn't, it's not, you know, a definite detection of the way this works yet, but it's at least intriguing and something they plan to study more. Wow, so did, have they found that the uh, the egg is releasing this chemical that the... Uh... They found, no, they found that it is attracted to a certain chemical compound and they have no idea whether or not the egg mm. releases this, but they mm. assume that it's probably something related to that, yes. otherwise why would this uh, receptor right, be there right. at all? Is that chemical Chanel number five? Could be. <laughs> I, yeah. I would think so. Quite likely. All right. Anyway, if people want to find out more about this, they can take a look at the latest issue of Science. So how's your Schrodinger cat doing today? It's dead. Is uh, it? It's alive. It's dead. No, it, no it's, uh, um, it's, um, uh, I, 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 don't I don't know. I haven't observed it yet. Well, you know, actually, that's kind of an interesting thing, because uh, for those people who don't know, the Schrodinger's cat uh, experiment is one of these interesting phenomenon of uh, quantum mechanics in which the strange properties of quantum um, elements at microscopic scales can be translated into macroscopic objects. Uh-huh. So the cat can be alive or dead, depending on the quantum uncertainty of the degradation of some radioactive particle. Right. This sort of idea is kind of being extended into quantum computers. Right. And use these sort of fundamental uncertainties of quantum bits to carry information. There's a number of contenders for how you could possibly arrange these qubits and do things with quantum mechanics in order to actually do computing elements. And so there's a number of candidates for implementing this in some sort of technology, but there's a new one that's just been reported in science by Churiescu and others. And what they demonstrated was that they could use a magnetic flux qubit consisting of three Josephson junctions in series on a superconducting loop. But this is actually kind of interesting because it's a lead 
candidate for actually implementing this in an actual mechanism. Yeah, I think that's one of the problems with these qubits is that you don't have very good entanglement. Like if you have more than a couple of bits, you start to get decoherence, so they can't get very consistent quality of qubits. Right. Yeah. And you also have the problem of uh, the fact that a lot of quantum computing, computing these days is done optically with lasers and so on. A little harder to self- make self-contained than, right. uh, than this, this magnetic flux loop. Right, right. It's all electronic here. So it's kind of cool. And they suggest that the, the long coherence times and relative simplicity of the fabrication, manipulation, and readout can make this a strong contender for practical applications. So it could be uh, cracking codes pretty soon, huh? <laughs> we can only hope to get those quantum computers to start cracking codes. Uh, but if you want to find out more about this, it's in the recent issue of Science, Volume 299, page 1869. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, coming up next, Dr. Robert Lawrence Kuhn will be joining us to discuss his new television program, Closer to Truth, Science, Meaning, and the Future. So stay tuned. Rocks only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, science has the power to transform our existence like no other intellectual pursuit on Earth. But what do scientific advances mean to us as we go about our daily lives? And how will they affect our future? With each new scientific discovery and technological innovation comes a new sense of who we are and why we exist. Well, joining us today on Berkeley Grox to discuss these issues is Dr. Robert Lawrence Kuhn. Dr. Kuhn is the creator and host of Closer to Truth, a new PBS series exploring the future of science, which debuts on the Bay Area on April 6th at midnight on KQED. Dr. Kuhn, among other things, is an international investment banker, corporate strategist, scholar, scientist, author, editor, and television producer. He is the vice chairman of the Geneva Companies, one of the leading and latest merger and acquisition firms for middle market private business in the United States, and a managing director of Smith Barney. Dr. Kuhn, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks. It's a pleasure to be there, Charles. Uh, well, you're the creator of a very fascinating new uh, television program for PBS, uh, Closer to Truth, Science, Meaning, and the Future. Uh, I'm just curious if you can explain a little bit about uh, what uh, your program is covering and uh, what our viewers will hopefully find out on watching this program. Well, we have a great deal of fun dealing with the latest scientific advances and what it means. What are the philosophical implications behind discoveries in the brain science and the nature of consciousness and cosmology and uh, human creativity? We look at very hard science, and then we ask, what does this mean for the human future, for self-understanding? And we're, we try to be pretty tough-minded We have very diverse opinions, as you can imagine, on the nature of consciousness. Uh, You go all the way from uh, 
people who uh, believe that consciousness is is a myth. There is no such thing as consciousness. Uh, to people who obviously believe that 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 all there is is consciousness. But, uh, but we, t- we we try to be very rigorous in our science, but allow our creativity to uh, to have some fun. I see. So, uh, so who are the guests usually on your program, and what's the format? Well, the format is we have uh, generally three or four really world-leading scientists or creative thinkers. Um, large majority are first-rate scientists, Nobel Prize winners. Uh, in each field, we try to get the best people, but we also get people who have uh, diverse opinions. Uh, we, we like there to be some some real uh, give and take. For example, we have a show on psychiatry. Uh, we have the title, the psychiatry have a split personality because you have the biological approach and you have the talk therapy approach. And, and we have one of the, the world's leading biological psychiatrists. We also have uh, one of the leading uh, psychoanalysts. And we discuss uh, how each one can work and, and what are some of the problems with each. So on every subject, we try to get the uh, dialectic, a very rigorous uh, crossfire. We have a show, for example, on who gets to validate alternative medicine, as you know, Alternative medicine is I don't know how many billions of dollars, but it's in the uh, you know the, the double-digit billions in terms of what people spend. Well, we have two of the world's leading critics uh, of alternative medicine who really feel that it's not only um, uh, taking people's money, but it's it's in large cases injurious to their health. And we have two uh, practitioners uh, who are quite good scientists as well. We we don't deal with deal with fringe people, but it gets pretty hot. And that's good because, as our program says, it's closer to truth. It's not closest to the truth. We don't come up with a final answer in every show. What we do is we deal with with the subjects we feel are the fundamental issues of modern times, the relationship between religion and science, the relationship between basic science and national defense, lots of issues about the brain and the mind and how it works. Uh, These are the the fundamental questions that I believe are uh, are endemic to today's world, and we deal with the best scientists on the show, diverse opinion, and we let the viewer enjoy the process of listening into their uh, conversation. The metaphor of the show, if you will, is we sit around a table and it's like after dinner and the scientists are there just philosophically talking about their own interests and the viewer gets the eavesdrop. It sounds like a lot of fun. So it seems to me as if, I guess, the, the focus of the show is also not just, I guess, discussing the science, but more how it relates as well to society and the implications it have for society. Yeah, yeah, particularly in a sense of an understanding of what human beings and our environment is all about. We don't deal with things like health care or things that you, you might normally see on the Sunday morning programs, but what we deal with, you know, why is it important to you that the universe is 13.7 billion years old. You know, wh- wh- why is that interesting? Why should we spend money on it, and why is that exciting? Or negative energy in the universe, or, you know, where is the memory in in the brain? Is it is it at the level of uh, circuitry in the brain, broadly, you know, millions of neurons together, or is it, as some people think, in in a quantum effect within you know part of a part of a one neuron? Where is memory stored? And we don't just ask the question itself and try to get the answer. We, we, we try to bring out why is this important? What will it tell me about myself and my world if I know that? 
Uh, well, let's look over some of, I guess, the uh, the upcoming programs. Not to create any spoilers here, but uh, I guess one that's coming up on April 13th is um, one regarding science religion. What uh, has come out of that uh, discussion? Yeah, I've had great fun with that. Yeah. We actually have two shows, one on science and religion, another called Can Religion Withstand Technology? Mm-hmm. The one on science and religion is we, we have three uh, very inter- interesting individuals. The name of the show is Can We Believe in Both Science and Religion? One is a uh, one of the leading skeptics in the world, Michael Shermer, who's um, head of Skeptic Magazine. He has a Ph.D. in uh, history of science uh, and an author. Uh, second person is one of the leading Islamic uh, scientists in the world. He's a Ph.D. in physical chemistry, an Islamic uh, scholar, and he has created the Institute for Islam and Science. And the third person is probably the leading uh, one of the leading Christian theologians uh, coming from a fairly fundamentalist-type tradition, but a very knowledgeable scientist and philosopher of science, and knows science very well, particularly brain science and cosmology. And so we have this mix of these three, and the relationships are fascinating. On some generic topics like, you know, the existence of God, you would think that the two, the Christian Islamic, would, would be virtually the same. But there are very, very interesting, subtle differences in their approach to the nature of religion and God. And you can see that being teased out. Hmm. So whereas they both might agree, yes, there is a God, uh, how they would describe it and how they would come to that conclusion is quite different. Uh, you also have a program coming up uh, later on, well, several programs, I guess, on, on the cosmos and origins of the universe. This time. Yeah, the, the, the two core areas that we focus on every mm-hmm. season are the nature of brain and mind, consciousness, mm-hmm. and cosmology and universe. Mm-hmm. This is the two um, pole, the, the two opposite poles of the axis of, around which the show revolves. <laughs> and the two shows on, on the universe, uh, one is how weird is the cosmos, and we have... Uh, some very interesting people talking about the nature of it. Alan Guth, who has uh, created what's called inflation theory, which is one of the great theories on, on really describing the early part of the universe. And um, we deal with some of the very strange things that are going on, negative energy, dark matter, and how we know these things. Uh, you know, Why is it that only uh, 4% or 5% of reality is physical things that we, we see and touch, and that 95% is all this strange stuff? You know, that's what our life is about. Second show is, is about life elsewhere in the universe. What can we know about uh, alien worlds and can there be life in, in other other places? Is the universe full of life is the name of the show. Uh, and there we deal very, with very, a very scientific approach. Was, how do we know that there are planets around other stars and what are the techniques that we use? And what are the possibilities for life? We deal with science called uh, extremophiles, where, where life can exist under the most extraordinary conditions of heat and cold that we would we used to think n- impossible. So we deal with the really the science of astrobiology in that show. We also have a, a third show which deals with the universe in a very different way, and that's called uh, How Does Order Arise in the Universe? And that's a very special show because we have, uh, it's our only show with two people, but the two people are quite special, uh, Murray Gell-Mann and David Baltimore. Mm. Uh, the way I describe them is that if you add up their ages when they, won, when they each won Nobel Prizes together, it, it is well under 80 years old. <laughs> so they were both in their 30s when they won Nobel Prizes, and it's a fascinating discussion about how in a world that is generally seemingly dominated by disorder and a tendency to disorder, 
how in that process you can go from what seems to be total disorder at the beginning of the universe to our existence today, which looks like it's extraordinarily ordered. So that is a very different approach to the structure of the universe. You also have a number of programs on the human mind and how different at processing the mind work. Yeah, and, and I, would, I would say again, though, that, that is, uh, that's one of the fundamental questions of human existence is the nature of consciousness. And there are so many different ways to approach it. We, we approached it this season, and that's a subject we deal with every season is the nature of consciousness. And we will uh, you know, never get old in, in, uh, in figuring out new ways to attack the, the, the issue. This time we, we dealt with the nature of uh, different scientific approaches uh, to the nature of consciousness. And we had four people on the show. One is a very well-known neurosurgeon who worked on the split-brain experiments with Roger Sperry. He was the neurosurgeon who uh, sh- showed the difference with epilepsy when you have a right and left brain. And he actually did the surgery. And the second person is one of the leading uh, neuroscientists at the cellular level in computational neuroscience, uh, Christoph Koch. And third uh, person is a psychiatrist who has written on really on the social nature of consciousness, how and she, Leslie Brothers, believes that uh, consciousness is really a almost an artifact of the social interaction. You can't have consciousness unless you have a social event of uh, people interacting or, uh, or living things interacting. And the fourth person is actually by profession an anesthesiologist, but he has worked on theories with Roger Penrose that uh, takes very advanced thinking in physics and puts it into the structure of the nature of consciousness. And they believe that consciousness is related to quantum effects. And they look at a particular part of the nerves uh, of a neuron and say that, you know, that's the locus. So you have these four radically different approaches, you know, your social psychology, a neurosurgery, a neurocomputation, and uh, quantum physics, if you will. And everybody feels that their area is the way is where you explain consciousness, and so the viewer can really get four radically different views, and you know probably come away more confused than they started. But that's good because now they're closer to truth. Indeed, maybe that is the big question. So uh, the show is titled "Closer to Truth." How much closer to truth do you think we are after so many years of uh, scientific inquiry? Well, I think the answer is that the more you know, the more you realize uh, how much there is to know. And uh, the process itself is, I believe, a significant part of our humanity. So what do you believe are the final frontiers of science that uh, the big questions left to be answered? Well, I, I think the big questions today are the same big questions they've always been. We just have a much richer understanding of what the components are. Again, I would say that brain, mind, nature of consciousness, it's our way of being aware of the world. And and the implications and the ramifications uh, are just enormous uh, in, in terms of pathology, when things go wrong, we have a show on autism. And when things, when we we interpret, uh, you know, our lives and everything that we do in terms of how we perceive things, and at the other extreme, it's the universe in all of in all of its unbelievable majesty and mystery. We seem to really be honing in now on uh, origins, and yet there seems to be every few months uh, some new theory on what may what may happen uh, ultimately, and. Uh, 
I believe that even though these events are billions of years into the future, that knowledge of them today forms an enriching part of, of our existence. I certainly would agree. Uh, we're running a little bit out of time, but I'm just curious. You, you have a very diverse background. I'm, I'm curious, why did you decide to uh, create this series? Well, you know, you mentioned a number of things that I do at the beginning, and all of that is sort of uh, external, but my real love is I have a, a Ph.D. in neurophysiology, which I have uh, gone bad on and didn't, and didn't pursue science and went into various uh, activities in business. And I have always had a passion for science and for an understanding of its implications. So that, that's been my real life, as I, as I put it. Uh, you know, my real profession is doing this show and, and communicating science. It's just that the, the world and its wisdom decided that that was not going to be something it was going to pay me very much for. So I had to pick up a side profession called investment banking along the way so I could do my real job, uh, which is closer to the truth. <laughs> it's not a bad day job, though. <laughs> All right, well, uh, Dr. Kuhn, it's been a pleasure having you on our program. I appreciate it. Look forward to uh, talking again. All right, Dr. Robert Lawrence Kuhn is the creator of Close to Truth, Science, Meaning, and the Future, uh, which airs in the Bay Area on KQED on April 6th. Dr. Kuhn, thank you again for joining us. Thank you. All right, you're just listening to Dr. Robert Lawrence Kuhn discussing his new series, Closer to Truth, which airs in the Bay Area on April 6th. You're listening to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Coming up next, you can find out what makes pizza cheese so stretchy. So stay tuned. Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, have you ever wondered what makes pizza cheese so stretchy? You can find out on this week's edition of Everyday Science. When the moon hits your eye like a bigger pizza pie. Ever wonder what makes the cheese on pizza so stretchy? The answer can be found in Everyday Science. Mozzarella is the classic pizza-making cheese, and its stringy, stretchy quality is no happy accident. It's made that way. To make a long story short, let's visit the local dairy. Here, all cheese starts out as pasteurized milk, which is pumped into stainless steel vats where a special bacteria is added that feeds on the sugars in the milk, creating lactic acid in the process. Lactic acid is what thickens the milk on its way to becoming cheese. Next, the thickened milk is warmed and a clotting substance is added. In less than an hour, the milk has become curds, which are actual blobs of cheese and whey, which is a liquid byproduct that is drained away. 
Now our mozzarella is about to take shape. Unlike other cheeses in which the curds are allowed to fuse together and be compressed into blocks, the cheese that is destined to become mozzarella is dropped into hot water and thoroughly stirred. That heat combined with the stirring makes the protein molecules inside the cheese much looser and more flexible. Even more stirring stretches them out into long strands that line up end to end. Not unlike the molecular structure of rubber. And finally, the now pliable mozzarella is salted and put into molds to harden and age. And the next time it's heated up, like in the oven of your favorite pizzeria, its long, stringy molecular structure returns to its old, resilient self. Well, hope today's show wasn't too much of a stretch. Thanks for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's national education program, making science make sense. Oh, my God, Everyday Science Lady. You know, you can stretch my cheese any day. Well, coming up next is the Tokyo Kid with the answer to last week's question of the week. Take it away. Okay, now here's a Tokyo Kid with the answer to last last week's question of the week. What is a rubbing alcohol? Well, rubbing alcohol is formerly known as a 2-propanol. Uh, that's right. It is exactly like the alcohol you find in beer except with one extra carbon. It is used to uh, kill germs and uh, disinfect many other things. And that is what rubbing alcohol is. All right, thank you very much, Tokyo Kid. And now it's our good friend Mike Fitzhugh with this week's question of the week. Mike? This week's question is, what is GPS and how does it work? If you know, or just think you know, email us at groks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, just might find yourself. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Groks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. For Berkeley Groks, I'm Brian Gerke. And I'm Frank Ling. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. I'm Mike Fitzhugh. Make sure you visit us on the web at www.groks.net. And I'm Charles Lee. Stay tuned for more music with your host, Mr. Pixel. Pixel.